0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, animals like beavers, nesting ants, bees, and humans. Actively reshape their environments to make them more favorable for their own species. My guest today believes that the same is also true of nations. This, he argues, is the true meaning of Woodrow Wilson's phrase to make the world safe for democracy. But animals also change as they are adapting their own environment. John Owen argues that liberalism has evolved in ways that are no longer conducive to its own survival. And meanwhile, autocratic governments in Russia, China, and Iran Are actively shaping the international environment to favor autocracy. He believes that the way to ensure democracy's survival in the United States is to reimagine liberalism, to view it as less about disruption and perpetual openness, and more about commitment, community, and country. John M. Owen IV is the Ambassador Henry J. and Mrs. Marion R. Taylor, Professor of Politics, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture and the Miller Center for Public Affairs. All at the University of Virginia. His latest book is The Ecology of Nations American Democracy in a Fragile World Order, and it is the subject of our conversation today. I should add that John is a friend, now of many years' standing, and while he might be a thoroughgoing political scientist, and this is not a work of history, there is a lot of historical thinking in it. But more importantly, I wanted to have a chance to talk to him for at least one hour about his new book. We recorded the conversation in his study. I want to begin with asking you about the ultimate concern of the book. Let me quote you to yourself. You said the ultimate focus of this book is how to maintain the ability of the United States to remain in the world as a constitutional self governing country. Could you expand and expound on that?
1: Happily. Yes. Let me begin by saying I am a scholar of international relations. The tradition in my sub is to think of the national interest. We care a lot about the national interest, but what is that? The mainstream answer has so, usually some of been-
0: i us have always wondered what you think. Yeah, yeah.
1: The mainstream answer generally has been straightforward. What we call a realist answer is to be secure from foreign attack and intimidation, to have secure borders, to which means having a capable military, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, conducting your diplomacy in a certain way, a rational way. I don't disagree with that, but I think it's incomplete. I think the national interest for most countries at most times also includes maintaining the domestic regime or institution. So, Romania democracy matters a lot to most Americans. For China, the national interest includes the Communist Party, Maintaining its monopoly on power. Mm -hmm. So both. So in other words, they're two. two, These are two different things. They're not the same thing. But you like to think in the American case, we like to think they go together. Being a robust democracy entails or is consistent with national security. But the fact is, they're two different things. Mm -hmm. And so we want a world in which we can have both of these things. We can have
0: our cake and eat it. Um, We value multiple things we do we don't value Central. just one thing that, exactly. and this is a historical problem always if we go back to say 1688 1685 it seems you know, if you read churchill's great biography of his ancestor the duke of marlborough yeah churchill can't quite work up the historical imagination to see why english people cared english men cared so much about not being catholic mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they did they did And it drove, and it's very distant to us perhaps now, but it wasn't distant to them. So it wasn't just security. It was anti-Catholicism was really important to them.
1: That's right. So that's a, yeah, different time and place, but it's the same idea. And it really is a matter of not just a nice thing or a thing we care about. It's I'm insisting that we could think of that as a component of the national interest. All right. So why do I do that? Because I want to highlight a dilemma that afflicts. The United States and really all countries, or sometimes it's a really severe dilemma. They want to have both these things. They don't want to trade one for the other. Mm -hmm. So the United States doesn't want to, if we don't want to have to compromise our democratic institutions in order to be secure, internationally competitive, strong. We don't, to maintain our democracy, we don't want to have to sacrifice national security um, against attack. We want to have both these things. All right. This is true of all countries, A blanket claim I made. Problem here is there's this thing I call the international environment that can help or hinder Mm -hmm. us in achieving both those things at once Mm -hmm. that can make it easier or harder for us to have our cake and eat it. So I call this in the book, the a regime power dilemma, um, under some circumstance in the 1930s, and I'm, I appeal to the 1930s a lot, this horrible decade in Europe Latin, and most of the world that ultimately is, uh, ushered in World War II, uh, it's very hard for the United States or for a lot of countries to remain democratic. Mm-hmm. You can do it, but it seemed like you're you're paying a price, you're making some sacrifices, you're, and this is why a lot of countries are were becoming fascist or authoritarian in Europe and Latin America,
0: and so on. And there was a lot of pressure on the United States to do this. It's interesting to realize the number of fascist countries in Europe that were also anti-Nazi. Yeah, well, that's true. And the entire southern tier of Europe went fascist. Strange little countries uh, that kind of exist now, but Greece was a very strange kind of fascist government, yeah. yeah. Of course Austria was fasc- had a fascist ruler uh, who was like what, was he five foot tall? Okay? Yeah, that's, that's right. who was assassinated by a Nazi. Yeah. Because yeah. he was an anti Nazi yes. fascist. It was it was, it was, was, it was the thing. You have, Day, you have people yeah. like H. G. Wells saying this is the future.
1: You had a Mussolini lecturing Hitler in the early years of Hitler. You Nazis, you overemphasize race. This is really about the state. Mm-hmm. And so this is the point where Hitler was just new in power and he was finding oh. his feet and Mussolini felt entitled to lecture him. Hitler, of course, turned the tables on him later. But yeah, that's
0: right. Uh, so this gets to a, your big idea it's in yeah. the title of the book, The Ecology of Nations. Yes. So could you des- describe the background to that? Because you describe. For the, for the listeners, because you described that in the introduction, how you, st- you started reading, I didn't realize this about you, John, you were reading yeah. a lot of evolutionary theory. It was. Yeah, it was. Although I think in the end, you become a Lamarckian. My, my I, th- I think you're probably wrong. Right. At least human, we'll see that nations are
1: Lamarckian. Uh, the evo- evolutionary theory nerds really hammer me on this, but <laughs> okay. I don't care. Do your worst. Call me what you will. I uh, just want the argument to work. I think you're right. I really emphasize, let me, let me back up to the 1930s. Yeah. So something's going on, That's right? example. Something. So it's not just quits, that all of these countries, all of these parliamentary democracies in Europe and the Americas are feeling squeezed, are finding it's really hard to be democratic. Part of it's the great depression, which is just getting some worse and worse. But part of it is the appeal of what we, you know, I think rather consider extremist ideologies. Soviet communism, Stalin is running things there has a lot of transnational cachet. A lot of people find it appealing. And all the far fascism, Nazism being a kind of a form of fascism, I think, is rising and showing some successes,
0: actually, in putting people back to work. What's the great quote. I forget what American intellectuals said after visiting the Soviet Union and Muslims, Italy says, either way, the race is saved. Do I don't know that quote, but I could have used that when I was writing a book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, use ask- I'll
1: use it in the future and no. uh, I'm sure I'll attribute it to you. <laughs> Um, no, I didn't say it. No, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll get the side note. Um, then let's fast forward to the 1990s, mm-hmm. which I'm old enough to remember. I dare say perhaps you. I'm as so well. old I
0: remember them as well.
1: Yeah, I remember them vividly. Yeah, it's a lot easier to be a democracy then. In fact, the authoritarians and the communists are on the run. This is really the late 1980s. The late Samuel Huntington wrote a book about this called The Third Wave, came out in, I think, 1991. I've long been interested in this contrast. And, you have one decade with which I'm quite familiar the nineties in which democracy seems to be winning. We're at the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama put it, 1930s, where I wasn't around, I don't remember now you, I dare say you don't remember the thirties either. The opposite was the case. What's going on here? There's some, something in the world. These are not just random. So, so democracy is not randomly distributed across time and space. It, sometimes it's really widespread and robust and other times it seems to be disappearing. So that's a puzzle, always been a puzzle for me. Uh, So I said, there's something going on in what I call the international environment at work here that, and here's why I adopt the evolutionary language. I think it's helpful to to say it selects for democracy in the nineties, eighties and nineties, it is selecting for authoritarianism in the thirties. So I start out with that, you know, it's kind of metaphorical language, but I think it's a helpful way to think about it. And then I began to think, how does this work? If this is true, what exactly is going what's the selection mechanism? And I uh, then began to pay really close attention to Russia and China in today's world, because they are, both regimes are very worried about color revolution, so-called, which is these, this wave of democratic revolt, unrest, revolution in the early 21st century. They're
0: obsessed with it. They're, obs-
1: right? it's fair to say they're obsessed with it. They talk about it a lot. They study it. The Chinese, in addition, are obsessed, truly obsessed with the downfall of the Soviet Union in 1991. <laughs> they have think tanks devoted to this. They've written many, many studies that are determined that it not happened to them. So they think there's something in the international environment that is pushing against them to, be, to try to make them more democratic. They want to stop it. So they're quite aware. And so, so I began to ask, what exactly are they worried? How does this work anyway? It's not just... Word George, President George W. Bush saying America's goal is to promote freedom everywhere. They didn't like, they didn't like that, but they, there are other things they worry about as well. So, so I narrowed it down to three elements of the international environment. All right. One is international rules, institutions, practices. Some people find this very boring. It's really important. Things like the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations and to some extent. So these are institutions mostly set up by the United States at the end of the Second World War. Why did we do this? We say be- because the depression and World War II were so awful. We needed a rules-based international order. I accept that answer, but we have to probe a little more if you look back at The motivations of the Americans and the Europeans, especially the British who were intimate in generating these institutions is to safeguard democratic capitalism, to try to reshape the world so that it's friendlier to the regime type we value, we like most of it. And so how does that work a little with a little more precision? um, Here's a quick story actually from only a few years ago. The Obama administration propagated something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. This was a trading organization for the Pacific, which had certain rules. It was going to open up trade between the United States, Japan, Korea, all these other East Asian countries, but they had to follow certain rules. If they're going to get the goodies, they have to um, practice the rule of law. They have to be more transparent, less corrupt. So decentralized power, number of measures. Obama was really explicit that this was designed to put pressure on China to become more transparent, more constitutional, more law-governed, more like us. Mm -hmm. The Chinese knew what was going on. They were not going to join this TPP, Um, and uh, in the event, President Trump pulled us out of the TPP for reasons of his own, and so that took the heat off the Chinese. Chinese were quite pleased at that point. but. I'm telling that little story because it shows how if there are ways that democracies, especially the big, powerful United States can engineer international institutions to say there are lots of good things you can get. If you join this club of states and you follow the rules, but you're going to feel the pressure to become more democratic. The choice is yours. You can say, you can take it or leave it. The Chinese were not interested at the time, but you can multiply that by dozens and dozens of international institutions
0: so the this, united states has been doing this for decades in fact you begin the chapter on co-evolution by describing the monroe Doctrine. yes that's right, that's so, right. The, so and you and this is your idea that the great power engineers its its ecosystem that's right is that it struck me i well, i wrote in the margin of my electronic book that this strikes me as a great definition of what a great power is a power which has the ability to engineer its ecosystem. An ecosystem yeah. this Yeah. And this goes back in American history to the early 1790s, where Washington established a long help. We have to engineer the North American ecosystem. Right. We're not going to allow yes. a series of European powers to make war, to create a balance of power on the North American continent. Yes. Which will involve us in endless European wars.
1: Yes. The founders were... Really nobody used this evolutionary language. Darwin wasn't even around yet, but but they're seeing, they're seeing international relations in just this way that, so we're in the new, the United States is a new world. It's a small, tiny infant country. It's vulnerable. It's surrounded by, so this is before the Latin American revolutions. It's surrounded by colonies of Spain, Portugal, Britain. This is really hostile. So, so monarchies it's, Mm. it's a hostile territory. So it wants to make that territory friendlier. Fast forward a little bit in the 1810s, 1820s, Americans rejoice at the Latin American revolutions. Why? Because now we have all these sister republics to our South. The only big problem is to our North, the Canada is still British mm-hmm. colony, then Dominion. But to the South, the thing is much, much friendlier. So that's an, so the United States doesn't bring that about. It's it benefits from it. It
0: is interesting that the, the revolts in Canada of the 1840s are supported by so... Don't ask me why I'm starting to read a lot about. It. I am reading a lot about this. And uh, William, you can Ly- do worse. William yeah. Lyon Mackenzie, who sees yes. uh, refuge in Pink Buffalo or Rochester, yeah, and yeah, his, with his rebel newspaper, flees across Lake Ontario, yeah, and is there are these, these and a lot of those people are some of them like Mackenzie are, are immigrants from Scotland, obviously, yeah, but other them are Americans who've gone to Canada for cheap land, yeah, and then wish Canada to be the way they think New England is. That's right. So, yeah, there, why you not? See yeah. that, you see this infection. Yeah. But this also shapes the ecosystem right. around it.
1: That's right. Makes it. Oh, yeah. We have this idea that you know, the new world is different. Um, that when Monroe reads his speech in 1823, his address to the Congress, the bit on foreign affairs is written by John Quincy Adams. Um, but the message here is the Europeans have their own, they're a bunch of monarchies and they have this political system that is dominated by the great powers. This is what we call the concert of Europe on, and Monroe doesn't want this to travel across the Atlantic. So he's really afraid that the great powers of Europe, the ones on the continent, let's say Austria, Russia, Prussia, France are going to pull, they just invade France has just invaded Spain. Right, that's the key, a key to, moment to restore, to shore up the monarchy with a mm-hmm. hundred thousand troops, remove
0: a liberal, a yeah, liberal government exactly.
1: Government. And Monroe et al are really worried that if this works in Spain, maybe they'll try it in Spain's old colonies in the new world. And this is intolerable because it would revert. It would put the Americas back where they were before, you know, the little United States surrounded by these hostile monarchies. It's just not the ecosystem the United States wants. Mm-hmm. So it's taking, you know, it's bluffing. Uh, the U S can't actually enforce the Monroe Doctrine. It doesn't have much of a Navy, but. The British happily supplied that part of it with the Royal Navy and the United States, in fact, does enjoy a mostly friendly international environment in, in its own hemisphere. Uh, I, I suspect
0: yeah. that what the U.S. Navy does do quite a lot of in the 1820s is anti-piracy operations in the Caribbean. That's right. And negotiating with the new republics. Uh, yeah. Hazard Perry of Lake Erie dies of yellow fever in, I think, in Venezuela. Huh. Um, yeah. And yeah. I suspect if we went back and looked at the letters in the u s Navy file, this is my hypothesis is that the Secretary of Navy, who is his own department at the time and running his own fiefdom, yeah a lot of that's to basically quiet the situation in the Caribbean to make sure that no one gets else gets to intervene. So there's less reason, there's less of a there's less excuse, there's yeah. less of a place to put the crowbar of. Imperialistic intervention from Europe. If you suppress yeah. piracy and open up and make trade safe, no, that's right.
1: right. So I, yeah, I, no, I, I had didn't put that in the book. Okay. I, I didn't put Henry Clay. I, Clay is this champion. So Clay's American system. We, in the first instance, associate with government spending on infrastructure and so on, but it, it encompasses this notion this broad notion that the new world is distinctive from the old we are a republican hemisphere Mm -hmm. there are statues to this day i understand of henry clay in some south american countries Mm -hmm. um and so he had a real vision it was more extreme than the actual policy was of the united states but it was more or less what i'm talking about that yeah this idea that if we're going to be secure and remain a republic we need it's much easier to do that if we're surrounded by sister republics Yes. So let's talk about three liberalisms. Um, yeah.
0: What's your definition of liberalism?
1: Liberalism. Yeah. Liberalism is, I just have to give you an abstract definition to start with political philosophy that upholds individual freedom as the highest political good, or I stress political good. So if you're a liberal or you live in a liberal state, you can hold up to be the highest human good, something else like fidelity to God, or I don't know, uh, being a great artist or whatever but as political goods go the highest one for liberals is individual freedom mm-hmm. yeah that's so abstract that over the centuries we have had to fill in different ways and so a lot of my stages of liberalism is a story about the different ways we filled in the content of individual liberty
0: I, I have to say that the two previous conversations one with your colleague Olivier Zunz, uh, uh, and more recently uh, with Josh Ober and Brooke Manville, they both of them, all three of them, refused to use the word liberalism or ah, liberal. Interesting. Um, because they, in some way, bound democracy. You can't really talk. Like, you could talk about ancient Athens as a liberal regime. In a certain, in a certain, way, certain way, right. I think mean, Leo way. Strauss
1: tried that. Did yeah. he? The,
0: yeah. Uh, but, uh, but Olivier resisted. Did you feel as being under? Yeah,
1: so I listened to both of those podcasts. But anyway, go on. Yeah, where they thread? All right, I'm going to keep going. Liberalism.
0: Yeah, I can't back can't back out now. No, I don't think so. So, I think you should. So I so well. well,
1: Here's why I use it, and then I'll get back to the story. I'm one of those people. I'm not alone. This is not my innovation. Who said we have a hybrid regime in this country? In most countries, we call democratic today. I will not include ancient Athens, but today are liberal democracies and that means they're a marriage and kind of an uneasy, sometimes tumultuous marriage between democracy. Sorry, yeah, democracy understood as majority rule and liberalism understood as individual rights. Here again, we have two, two separate things. We like to think they go together, we hardly think about it, but they are two different things. Historically, Great Britain was liberal well before it was democratic, before. equality under the, under the law from 1688, but you can even trace it back further, maybe the Magna Carta. Equality of the law, which other European monarchies didn't have. On the other hand, you could say the Confederate states of America were
0: democratic, but not very liberal, or wildly democratic. Yeah. As yeah, yeah, you know, as I think I said in the Brookmanville Josh Ober conversation, South Carolina, just south of your native state, yeah. just had universal male white male franchise by eighteen oh six. Yeah, and that's dangerously Jacobin <laughs> that's and, and anyone right. else's. Is, it is also a slave power and a slave right. society, that's but right. it is crazily democratic. That's right. Compared to
1: yeah, uh, New York. That's right. Um, so, so, so we bring these things together. So over the 19th century, the United States and later Britain and other countries melded, brought these things together. But and by this time, we've forgotten that they are two separate things. And the separation comes about. As follows, let's say you have majority rule. Let's say the majority wants to persecute a minority, say by practicing well. chattel slavery, War. liberalism like, says expelling
0: you... them from the ground. And oh, all kinds ways of things. ways in which you know North Carolina, Georgia, expulsion of the Cherokee and the other yep. southeastern That's tribes right. is very much related to popular democracy.
1: That's right. Liberalism says you can't do that. That's right. They're citizens, etc. So liberalism really presents a limit on the will of the majority. This is why we have a constitution with a bill of rights. This is why. Some of the people who objected to the Constitution insisted on a Bill of Rights. We need these things enumerated, we need them put on paper, that 1688 Bill of Rights and after the glorious revolution in England, similar. we need these things codified. At the same time, you can have a liberal regime that's not very democratic, as is say, Britain was that way for a long time. So equality before the law, everyone who commits a felony goes before the same judge. Uh, But not all of them convoked, right? Not all of them have representation in parliament. Again, um, this is why I use the term liberalism. I think it helps us think about what we today mean by democracy. All right. That said, I'm really focused more on liberalism than democracy per se in the book. And liberalism has, well, use the evolutionary language. It's evolved over the centuries. It's the liberalism we have now, the way we think about individual liberty, the threats to liberty, how to get liberty, how to secure liberty. Are quite different from those of the founding period uh-huh. or even the 1930s and New Deal period. So I say liberalism has been through three historic phases. The first is classical liberalism. Uh-huh. Classical liberals, here are people like Jefferson, Immanuel Kant in Germany, some of the philosophers in Spain, Benjamin Constant, the list goes on. They said, well, by individual liberty, um, We mean the freedom of the individual, and it's usually an adult male property owning maybe to over his own property, over his own person, over his own household. Um, What folks have done over the centuries is think about the chief threat to liberty. What is getting in the way of personal freedom? At that point, it was really thought to be the despotic state. The old regime state, the marriage of throne and altar, which was so, so just read the U S declaration of independence to see how this worked in the minds of the founders, all the faults attributed to the king are complaints about the despotic state that you see in France and Poland and the Netherlands and other places, roughly the same time. So the remedy for classical liberals is shrink the state, weaken it so that people can be freer so that they can own property and move about as they want and have the career they want and so on and classical liberalism was distinctive there's still classical liberals around today certainly i have some sympathies with some elements of classical liberalism. yeah i uh, but classical liberalism really began to encounter a lot of trouble as the industrial revolution took hold in the 19th century And the story here is pretty familiar. If you know your Marx and your history of socialism, the industrial revolution really created a new person, the working class, the proletariat as Marxists call them. These are people who had moved off of the farms. Many of them or their parents had been farm laborers. They moved to the cities and worked in factories and they have a completely new social and economic situation. This is just something that happened because of technology and social changes. Uh, These folks are, they move to the cities and work at factories for a reason. It seems to present better opportunities to them, but they're very unhappy. Sometimes they live in places where there's only one employer. That's a monopsonist, as economists call it. They don't have a lot of bargaining power, so they have to put up with very low wages, no benefits, working seven days a week, and so on. This is why you get labor unions, trade unions. This is why you get socialist parties. This is why you get communism. So liberals, classical liberals, we get, we're observing all this and getting worried, worried that property rights were in danger. This growing, becoming huge working class is frustrated, angry, and beginning to demand a change in the way we do things, including a violation of property rights. Maybe private property is the big problem here. So liberals thought this is not good. What can we do to remedy the situation? How can we retain individual liberty in this new world where there's this giant growing working class, that's mobilized and doing, and the solution comes from an anti-liberal, von Bismarck. That's right. In France, and Germany's a more interesting case, maybe. Yeah. If you have a downright reactionary saying, "I I know what to do here. I'll just grant the workers universal health care and a minimum wage and so on, then that'll be... Liberals saw They didn't like that either. They don't like Bismarck. So some liberals, the early thinking on this really is in Britain, TH Green and people like that are thinking, maybe we need to start to see the threat to individual liberty as not just this despotic state, because the state's not really despotic anymore. We have tamed the state. Mm -hmm. It's really unfettered capital. Mm -hmm. There's this new menace to individual liberty so what do we need to do we need to recruit the state to tame capital the way we our ancestors tamed the state
0: when in america that sort of apex or that the first flush of that really is the teddy roosevelt's Osawatomie speech. exactly yeah. exactly and it's so it's in
1: some senses bipartisan you've got the new republic magazine yeah. john dewey has a long series on this in the 20s so oh. along with some other people I'll call this welfare liberalism
0: it's it, <laughs> And so Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Clement Attlee, these are the political figures of this this movement.
1: And John Maynard Keynes, the economist, puts a more rigorous footing underneath it. So there's a lot of experimentation by people like Roosevelt, both Teddy and
0: Franklin. And to get back to the 30s, this experimentation occurs because people, I wrote some marginal notes about this, it's odd that the Depression comes, the 1930s come, fascism or arrives, Stalinism yep. arrives, yep. and they're looking around for the fire alarm under glass. Yep. And what they find is stuff that they have been theorizing about and did some during the war socialism in Germany. That's and right. They, various mechanisms have been attempted to have been done in England yep. during the, particularly Lloyd George's. Yeah, um, that, um, yeah exactly. premiership. Uh, yeah. Um, and they- Pull those back out and then try them all. Out.
1: Yeah. because In the 20s, they set those and put them behind glass again, mm-hmm. but now they got to break the glass and seriously pull them out. I don't think anyone else knew what
0: else to do. No. I think that's no. probably the only, those are the only mechanisms that are available. No. If you're looking for a mechanism.
1: So I like this quote from that William Bill Luckenberg has from FDR. I don't know when you may know, thirty three thirty four. He says, um, He's asked who the most who's the most dangerous man in America is there are two. There's Huey Long and there's Douglas MacArthur. I think that re- represents the two yeah. the two problems, right? Yeah. Huey Long, the great redistributionist, who is by some stroke of luck for Roosevelt assassinated before he can and then MacArthur, who later does show he's not take to take nothing away from his military prowess and historical importance, but his attachment to liberal democracy was questioned. He is
0: an unsettling belief in his own destiny. Exactly. That's right. That's right.
1: So that's welfare liberalism. And it really takes hold because the depression is so awful. And you're right. Roosevelt at all are casting about how, how do we save this regime? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it is looking pretty grim. The new deal takes hold. It has its versions over in Europe, some imitators. And again, Keynes puts a kind of footing beneath it. And by the forties, it's really established
0: in policy. Yeah. A weird way. I've heard Dominic Sandberg argue this, that the depression being so much weaker in Britain, it's not until 45 in the Attlee government yep. that you really have what you're call welfare liberalism takes place in Britain. And part of that is soldiers returning from the war
1: and, and civilians having suffered so much. Mm-hmm. So after World War One, Lloyd George had promised homes fit for heroes, yep. didn't really deliver. At this point, the British people clearly, as they turned Churchill out and, and put labor in power, they... Before the war is even quite over, they clearly want welfare liberalism. So, so yeah, Ernest Bevin, the entire labor program is geared toward this way. And you see it taking hold. The socialists in France, social Democrats, the SPD in Germany, quite powerful. Even the Christian Democrats, the party of the right are very much into a version, a kind of softer, called Catholic welfare liberalism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's stage two liberalism. It is all about full employment, stabilization of wages, and it's very family oriented, nuclear family oriented. The culture is quite conformist. Right? So when we think of the nineteen fifty the average I have my parents' high school yearbooks, I still have those things. And one striking thing, Al is everyone looks the same. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they're high school, they look older, look about our age. Yeah. Um but they all look the same, and that, that's the culture of welfare and liberalism. Uh, we can do it. With, so do all soldiers in the Civil War. It's because of this enormous ah, this, sure, this, this those enormous yeah. beards. So down. no, you're right. So but the telling contrast, I think, is what happens in the '60s and '70s yeah. when there's a burden on everyone to look different. <laughs> so there's a conform conforming non-conformity that emerges in the '60s. That so that's the third stage of liberalism starting to show
0: itself, which yeah. I call open liberalism that's better than because uh, you're trying to avoid the toxic label of neoliberalism yes you're try, trying to capture seemingly
1: contradictory direction yeah so i want to and using that word, who's against openness i deliberately made it a word that would really sure, yeah. might annoy some people uh, but it's because i really i think we need to confront this thing yeah. so open liberalism is a hybrid of this uh, countercultural. um you can call it social liberalism It emerges in the sixties, the nonconform culture. And on the one hand, in the economic side of it is coming out of the seventies, which, okay, I'll use the word neoliberalism once. That was it. Did you hear it? I, I did too. So no, it was, was twice was done. Sure. yeah, uh, but it is a, a deregulation of the economy, lowering taxes, which actually starts, people forget this under Jimmy Carter, the deregulation. And of course, Ronald Reagan really amps it up a lot. Uh, but Margaret Thatcher's doing this in Britain. It's happening in France, of all things. Francois Mitterrand, he's a socialist. He finds he actually has to deregulate the economy. That's, that's the part, that's yeah. the one that people don't remember. That Exactly. english yeah, the speaking uh, world. Such an important yeah. case. And so this is where the parties of the left in the Western world, make their peace with markets, make their peace with capitalism. And finally they, and it culminates really in the third way, so-called Bill Clinton, Tony Blair. Jean Caquin in Canada and others all over Europe. Um, it's funny this the 60s counterculture and the 70s, I'm sorry, I'm gonna use the word again, neoliberalism. That's the last time. They come from different places and they look like enemies. Actually, they there's a lot of good scholarship on them. They fit together pretty well. So what's what is open liberalism? Open liberalism says the real threat to liberty. Is not anymore the despotic state, because we don't really have those anymore. It's not unfettered capital, because we kind of like capital now. We've fettered capital enough. It is traditional boundaries, norms, institutions, rules. These things are getting in the way of personal liberty. And it really is time to confront those. And how do we do that? The state and capital markets. We can do this with both these big institutions. So that's, that's
0: the open liberal program. It goes back to the first protest at Berkeley. It was the waving the computer cards, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Okay. The, the symbol of the conformist era was a computer punch card. Yeah, I think of Mario
1: Salvo and the yeah. free speech movement. and uh, That's right. Uh, the machine is crushing you and yeah, and so on. So what one story... Oh, yeah, that's hippie, but it also can be folk libertarian. It can be... F- exactly. No. There really is more resonance there than people... Recognize. So there ensued a real battle royal. So I have in mind a scene in Chicago 1968 a Democratic convention where you have Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and the Yippies, and many more people than just the Yippies, but lots of countercultural and anti war protesters there to try to stop Hubert Humphrey from being nominated as the Democratic uh, presidential nominee. And they're confronted by Chicago police and national, Illinois National Guard, mm-hmm. who proceed to beat them up on uh, the Battle of Get Avenue. There's hardly a Republican in this picture. So the cops, and National Guard, these are working class guys. Uh, some of them were Vietnam vets or their brothers are, and they're mad. They don't like these punk kids.
0: And if I'm correct, we now think of Daley as a corrupt, big machine politician, yes. but he's not, it Jim Thompson? He's not a 1920s Chicago right. mayor. He's like a reformist. Well, he's reformist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Look at the record. It's maybe not what you think. On the other hand, he doesn't like these punk kids so that there's footage for those interested. You can, if you hunt on YouTube, it doesn't take very long. You can find the entire democratic convention covered by CBS and then by also by NBC Huntley Brinkley and Walter Cronkite interviews daily. It's kind of weird. But it's this moment where you're finding welfare the old welfare liberalism confronting this new thing it doesn't understand. It's also liberal, but it's the beginnings of open liberalism. So you find uh, one last thing, after Watergate, so 1974, a midterm congressional election puts into office a lot of what were called Watergate babies. These are McGovernites mostly. Harry Hart and I, I won't call them Bill Bradley, some of those names. These are people who are very influenced by the counterculture. They also really don't like labor unions and daily and the whole urban machines. It's time to remove those things so that personal, so we can really be free. Joe Biden actually is what we do. Biden's okay. sure it's 74, isn't it? Yeah, yeah 74. Is 74. No, well spotted. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's how long ago it was.
1: So I have to, I see value in all these liberalisms. I try to be if nonpartisan. You're,
0: but you're extremely fair I have,
1: a, I have nothing of not fair. Open liberalism has to its credit, in addition to some cultural achievements and so on, I really think it helped win the Cold War. I think it helped vanquish the Soviet Union. I think Ronald Reagan, this is controversial. There's a John F. Kennedy plots in Berlin. There is no Ronald Reagan plots in Berlin. I think there never will be. But I think he doesn't get enough credit for really pushing this deregulation and economic growth really hard in the 80s, which put enormous part of, that's part of what put pressure on the Soviets to class. Um, so all, well, all credit to open liberalism for that,
0: but there's a, but you No, know, go ahead. We have to, we're into this deep enough that people might be wondering why as an international scholar of international studies, yeah, you're, so what's the connection to yes. international stuff? So we, right. we should probably get to that.
1: Yeah. So it's hit, I hit that a minute ago when I said... Open liberalism helped vanquish the Soviet Union. So what the United States was doing under welfare liberalism with Roosevelt and Truman, and later under open liberalism with Carter, Reagan, Bush the elder, Clinton, is trying to engineer the ecosystem to favor the United States and its current form of liberal democracy. So when we... So the United States, in building international institutions, as we did after World War II, in sustaining those institutions over time, in putting out propaganda about how, or sorry, public diplomacy, about how wonderful liberal democracy is. And I agree, I, I'm a liberal Democrat in that sense. Um, in setting an example of how successful democracy, how it's the best system for national development, national prosperity, justice, freedom, and so on. We're engineering the ecosystem. It's just, we've done it. The content of liberalism that we've been pumping into the international ecosystem has changed over time. So in the 1940s, the international rules and regulations we put into the International Monetary Fund, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, had to do with very heavily regulated economies. It was a welfare liberalism-shaped world. Reagan really changed that. Reagan, Thatcher, and even Carter before Reagan, started to change the rules. So the most obvious case here is the World Bank, the IMF, the way they lend money. Starting in the 80s, they began to change the rules on, con- on borrower countries. This became called the Washington Consensus. So if you borrowed money, you had to deregulate your economy. That was one condition. This was not the case in the 40s and 50s. So we changed the rules because we thought we did it in good conscience. We think we now know better what makes for a prosperous economy. We're just going to require other countries to play. If they're going to play ball with us, have to do it as well. What's wrong with that? It's our money anyway. Um, and that. so that, that's pointing to this change the United States um, made, not just within its own borders, but really in the international ecosystem. And that brings us up to the present day because open liberalism, I say, is still dominant and it's not just about the eighties, it's about today. It's dominant within most liberal democracies and it really is dominant in the international ecosystem
0: because we put it there. So what, as we said that the Monroe Doctrine was itself an example of liberal internationalism. Yeah. Shaping the ecosystem. That's right. Um, Heck, those anti-pirate operations I was talking about for free trade, commerce, my goodness, that's classical. That is classical liberal it nas- is. nationalism. That's right. Um, um, allowing, really, sending a gunboat to open up a port or a kingdom in Africa or South America to free trade. Yeah. That was a classic English, British. That's right. yeah. There's a lot of that back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, setting up the IMF, set Bretton Woods Agreement, GAT, the General agreement on tariffs and and yeah. tariffs and trade. John Keynes was at it, Bretton Woods. He's yeah, at Bretton Woods. Yes, yeah. 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 yeah, shaping yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, shaping the whole thing. So mm-hmm. These are all varieties. These are the matching sort of liberal internationalisms that go hand in hand with the sort of quote unquote domestic. And that's right. That's right. So there's it's no accident,
1: as certain people Radio like Moscow say, might say, yeah, uh, that you have this match between domestic regime and international rules and it the key is our own united states it's so powerful so wealthy so when i said let me back up and make this big point i'd make in the book which it's not the case when i say there's an international ecosystem mm-hmm. countries are not all passive in the face of that ecosystem they try to shape it mm-hmm. and the united states is the Biggest, most powerful country, so, so it's the best at shaping, and that's what that's where the engineering comes so this in. Is where so the, Costa Rica can't really do this, but the United States can. This
0: is the Lamarckian part of it. This is yes, where that's you, right. you change yourself in your generation, but then you endeavor to pass on the characteristics to the next yeah, generation. That's, that's of, right of yeah. leaders or what have you. Yeah, and, and this is the difference. The back the definition of great power. Costa Rica can't, but can Costa Rica be a regional power and shape shape the, its local ecosystem? Right. That, and that might be a nice regional. Yeah, yeah. Great power versus real. No,
1: I thought about this. I think in South Asia, India has, probably has this kind of sway Mm -hmm. or certainly wants it. Yeah. certainly would like it. Yeah. So I'm not concerned with regions, say, in the book, but I think you're right.
0: Yeah. We can talk about Russia then because Russia is obviously, um, you have three chapters, uh, one to China, one to Russia, and one to authoritarian internationalism. So So I want to, in the interest of time, focus on just Russia. Okay. That, it's in the news and they're both in the news, but Yeah, my mind is on Russia right now. Yeah. Sure. Um, Russia hates a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, we can go down a long list. What's Russia for? Hmm. If found- only we knew, <laughs> I think Ru- I, I'll
1: isolate. I'll talk about the, uh, a of Putin. I think and we have to talk about his Yeah. Is,
0: is, is, is a personal history.
1: Yeah. Pretty close to one. Yeah. So what does he want? He. I don't think he's completely cynical. We could say, the cynic would say he just wants to be powerful and rich. He's Maybe he's one of the richest men in the world, probably. And he's engineered all kinds of the end of term limits. He could be in power till 2036. He's going to be
0: in power, right? Now. He's got things arranged. So he's in yeah. power till he yeah. dies.
1: But yeah, clearly he lacks power and is, uh, wants more of it, wants it forever. I do think he's a Russian patriot, though. I think he has a, I would call it a wrongheaded, misguided view of his own nation's interests. But I think he wants russia to be a great country make russia great again mm-hmm. uh i don't think he's just kidding around he has a he was shaped by his experiences as a kgb officer back during the late cold war and the fall of the soviet union which he regards as a great the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century so so much for nazism and world war ii it was collapse so the soviet union was the greatest disaster i think he really means it um russia also he believes is persecuted. The West, the United States, and the Europeans want to keep Russia down. They want to pick it apart. They want it to fail. They want it to break into pieces the way they broke the Soviet Union into pieces. Why stop there? This is how Putin sees the West of the world. So I think what he wants is very defensive for now. He wants to preserve Russia and restore its greatness as, as a traditional great power as far as he can. Russia, in other words, he wants, he looks and sees what the United States has done. And he sees what I've just described, end of World War II, IMF, Reagan. It, he tells the story very differently. This is nefarious. This is wicked. Uh, it's an attempt to build a universal empire by the Americans. Look what they've done to Germany and Japan. They have made them cogs in the American wheel. Mm-hmm. And the Germans and Japanese are too stupid to realize what's really going on. I'm not going to fall for that. Russia's not going to do this. Russia is an independent power. It, Always has been. It must be again. That's what he wants. And I think, you know, I paid a lot of attention to his speeches, that bizarre long speech about Russian history in Ukraine that he gave shortly before the invasion in 2022. I think he means it. I do. And that's not to say he's crazy. He has, he's pursuing ends that I think are ultimately misguided, but he's pursuing them in fairly
0: rational way. So it's, so when he invades Ukraine, he is reestablishing an ecosystem. Exactly. That will be hospitable to his idea of Russian. Exactly.
1: So I want to get back to what I said a few minutes ago.
0: He's terrified of these
1: color revolutions, which Ukraine had the orange revolution earlier in the 21st century. He worked very hard to stop that from happening and he failed. He was beaten, but he thinks by Washington, by Brussels, by George Soros cia is so good CIA can do anything they want except when they can't yeah
0: nothing they can't do yeah yeah
1: so he's terrified of this because and let's think about what he's worried about why is he worried about ukraine joining nato does he really think nato is going to invade russia maybe but probably not invading russia is a bad bet we know from the number of cases you and i could go on for hours about those i think he really is worried about democracy, liberal democracy on his border, and he already has it with the Baltics, um, Poland is nearby. He doesn't, he wants to keep this away, especially from Ukraine, which is little Russia in that worldview. Um, but, and it's not just paranoia. We have a lot of social science on this, Al, that it's what we call neighborhood effects when you have a lot of democracy. If you're trying to be an authoritarian country surrounded by democracy, it's tough, it's be. It's a reverse of the United States and the Monroe Doctrine saying, we're a republic. We don't want to be surrounded by monarchies. It's just hard for all economic reasons, social reasons, political reasons. It's very hard to maintain our regime. So if you want to look at it that way, Putin thinks of himself a little bit like Monroe thought of the United States in the 1820s, mm-hmm. 200 yeah. years ago, actually, exactly 200 years ago, but he's flipping, he's a authoritarian, that doesn't want democracy because he thinks democracy will destroy Russia. Mm-hmm. At least democracy
0: the way we do it in the West, liberal democracy. is going to destroy Russia. So what are the, um you spent some time looking at, as I said, this sort of authoritarian internationalism, but let's focus on Russia first. What yeah. are some, these often get, um in American commentary, these are often overlooked or basically dismissed, yeah. but there are very interesting ways, which for Slavic speakers, the the information operations and other means that Putin's Russia tries to shape its ecosystem.
1: Yeah. So Russia has done this really directly and boldly in former Soviet republics, like Belarus, Ukraine, tried it in some of the Baltics for a while. And in this, in a different way, the stands in Armenia and so on. Putin has really wanted to keep authoritarians in power in his west to his west. And so he's been quite overt in trying to mani- it really, actually, successfully manipulating elections, pumping up. So in Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, Europe's last dictator, supposedly. Um, he and Putin don't get along that well. Uh, Lukashenko's a lot taller. That doesn't help. Um, Looks like he's eaten another Putin. He does. Have you seen the yeah. president of Albania? By the way, he's a giant. Anyway, sure. we're not talking about him now. Such a small country and such a large. Country. Exactly. I, there's some kind of correlation here, but. Putin, without Putin's help, um, manipulation, money, big time money, media domination in places like Belarus, these guys might not be in power and they know it. Uh, Lukashenko and Putin don't always get along, but they need each other. Um, Putin did this for years in Ukraine as well. He really hates Zelensky. Then there's Western Europe and to some extent the United States. We might exaggerate the degree to which Russia manipulates things over here, but they certainly try. And they have some success. But in Western Europe, they have favored populist parties and they favored political disorder and chaos. So they've contributed money to populist parties in Austria, in France, or at least lent money. They also seem to like, they don't really care if it's right populist or left populist. They just
0: wanted to disrupt the liberal democratic consensus. Yeah, I assert it is. Someone from the Liberal Institute in Berlin talking about how interesting Germany, he says, is the, it depends on the country. Sometimes it's the left populist, sometimes it's the right populist. Germany is the only country where the Kremlin has connections to both the left and the right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Rule of thumb is in Northern Europe, they back the right populist. In Southern Europe, they back the left. And in Germany, you're right, they back both. So that's telling us something. It's partly it's a chaos project to try to, just disrupt these countries. What, so what's Putin want to happen to Ukraine if he can't have all of Ukraine? He knows he can't get all of Ukraine, all the way to the Polish border. But he can bust up Ukraine. Uh, he can do to Ukraine what he did to Georgia, which is divide it, uh, make it weak, and turn its people against each other. And, you know, he's tried. He actually has failed in, in that pretty much. And it,
0: and it always helps if he can make, I think this is the main thing, the to make the Western liberal democracies look like fools yeah that's right i mean this is yeah. even if they interference in the 2016 election who knows if it influenced the 2016 election empirically but it certainly made things look yeah. stupid in russia that's why right. would you want to do this that's right. russians just look at how broken and and bankrupt this system is yeah oh, and then of course 2020 does that in Spain. they're corrupt yeah. elections are fixed yeah oh, all the rest of oh yeah very good for a russian audience
1: and elements of you know, audiences in the West. So the Russians are putting a lot of energy and money into propaganda against the Western model of liberal democracy that we've been talking about for the last however long, to show that it's it's despotism in disguise, to show that it's on an imperial project to rule the world, that it's actually not even helping Americans anymore. Nobody should want this lousy system. Russia has um, an alternative, oh, and it's also very decadent. So Russia, one thing Putin has done is quite a neat trick is to, to some extent, co-opt the social conservative parties and movements around the world to say, we're, Russia's your champion, right? We're not decadent like these Westerners. And this has a lot of appeal with many people in the West, certainly not all Westerners, but people, social conservatives kind of dig some of the critique and say, well, at least he's saying something So, so. Russia's effort to engineer the ecosystem, and Russia is not it, its economy is maybe smaller than Canada's. It's just not, but if it does have some levers, it has lots of nuclear weapons, and it has a lot of soft power. Believe it or not, it's using this to try to engineer the ecosystem by um, keeping authoritarians in power, by trying to reshape the international discourse on democracy so that people don't think. It's the greatest system after all, and trying to change some of the international rules and discourse on things like human rights and trade and the internet. So Putin wants internet censorship. He really doesn't like the way the United Nations talks about human rights. And as he would put it, persecutes Russia and other like-minded regimes on human rights, the way it issues these meddlesome reports that try to humiliate Russia and countries like Russia. So the Russians and the Chinese, and this is my authoritarian internationalism chapter, the Russians, the Chinese, and some other countries, Iran, are actually cooperating on a quite sophisticated level to try to alter the discourse about human rights at the UN. To say they're more, human rights really are first and foremost about group rights. They're about a national right to development, the right to national independence. Those come first. Yeah. These wealthy, powerful Western countries already have that. And that's why they're concerned with the right to a fair trial and those bourgeois, bourgeois things. values. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we, you know, we're starting from a lower plate. We, you know, we have a different notion of human rights. You need to respect that. so that's the effort. It had, this is
0: cleverly told and it has, it, it, they're making some headway. We, uh, in the time remaining, which is short, um. Do you think that we're heading towards two different systems of international order? Are we there already?
1: Yeah, I don't think we're there already. I lay out at the end of the book a couple of ideal, typical options or options, possible outcome.
0: Did you feel bad in having to offer helpful suggestions? I did. Did
1: you just want to just the mic and walk away? I did. I did. But you know these editors, readers, (laughs) Uh, okay, smart guy, what do we do now? You've made us really depressed, so... Yeah, so I do talk about how to, f- how we might think about fixing liberalism. But I also talk about the state of the world over the next 20 years or so. So one, one way this might play out is a single international order, global order, where the United States, China, and Russia continue to compete to shape it. cut Cod- a codominium. Exactly. Yeah. And we we've done that so far. Maybe we'll continue to do it. Um. It leads to some strike. The Chinese and the Americans aren't getting on so well. The Russians, of the Americans, clearly not. China and Russia are joining forces against the U.S. So it's uncomfortable. Maybe we'll usher in a Cold War. Um, But it's a single world order. The other way this could shake out, I say, is two separate but somewhat overlapping international orders. And one would be basically run by China, but Russia would be... An important part of it. And serve
0: the Igor to their Frankenstein. I think. So,
1: exactly. That's right. And it's become more that way since Russia attacked Ukraine. Russia has become more dependent on China in the last two years. The other would be can continue to be run by the United States with perhaps Europe and Japan as its Igor's. Mm-hmm. Um, these would not, I don't foresee completely separate blocks the way we had in 1953 where the Soviets and their bloc hardly traded at all with the Western bloc. It's hard to get there from here. Chi- China and the US are so heavily interdependent economic that it's hard to see it happen. Now, it could happen, anything could happen, but the, what we call opportunity costs would be really heavy. So ne- neither side wants that to happen, but both sides are getting really tired of the other's efforts to try to bend the world in its direction. And so you could find in the economic realm certainly as concerned human rights and internet governance, actually, where the Americans of the West generally favor openness so we can see websites in Portugal or South Korea. The, the Russians don't want that. They want censorship. They want national sovereignty over the internet, you know, the Chinese, mm-hmm. the Iranians, I keep, uh, other countries want uh, this and, as and well. I
0: we see a situation, I'm thinking of the BRICS, which it seemed like a kind of a little bit of a joke, it's association of Brazil, Russia. It, Iran, China, and South South Africa. Africa, but I can see a situation in which right. a Brazilian or a South African government maybe really soon right. would like those sorts of controls. And that would be very that would be very scary. Right. When those, they would, yeah, if those two nations then yeah went that way. One thing to keep
1: our eyes on is the B and the Bricks and the I. These are two big democracies: Brazil and India.
0: India, sorry, and they don't want Iran. I was yeah, no. subsidiary. I'm subsidiary. Iran for India. Well, I've mentioned it, it a a few times. But I know, but it's, that's right. And it, well, that's yeah. a very strange anomaly still that India remains yeah. in that.
1: I admit, but the India, frankly, and sadly, is becoming more authoritarian is. under Modi. And Brazil kind of muddling through. Uh, Bolsonaro was clearly a liberal Democrat. I'm not a big fan of the current leader as well. But yeah, I think Brazil is still a liberal democracy. Yeah. But they these are countries that do not want to be an American empire. They sure. really resist. Brazil is an excellent
0: example of the two. Both Bolsonaro and Lula are the sort sure. of, are both populists from different directions. That's right. Of Exactly. In the same way that the Russia, Russia supports Delinka right. and the AfD and Germany. Yeah. Bolsonaro, Lula, That's both, right. both of them work for them in different ways. So yeah. They work. Who cares what they believe? Right. This is their affect towards the United States is good. Yeah. And these countries, they'll resist
1: if the Chinese and the Americans say, you, you join our bloc or theirs, they're going to resist saying, get out of town. We don't have to choose. Mm-hmm. Other countries will choose. Um, the Europeans, since Russia invaded Ukraine, have clearly decisively said, you know what? All is forgiven America. They, we love NATO. In fact, we love it so much Sweden and Finland are going to join as well. Okay. So that's a kind of a block formation. That's kind of what I'm talking about. There's a bit of solidification going on. And meanwhile, China and Russia have drawn mm-hmm. closer. But I don't foresee again two hermetically sealed blocks staring at each other across the divide. I think they're going to be interacting a bit more. So it's going
0: to be a messy world. But obviously, liberalism is a inflection point. Yes, it has been for some time. This is a yeah. very long, stretched out gestation period. Yeah. In retrospect, we'll look back and we'll see we've already stepped into something. Yeah. yeah. Um And what what's a possibility there? I would see. Yeah. This. Here again, it's, I draw some encouragement from history.
1: My own story says liberalism has been in trouble before. It has been inadequate to the challenges of the day and it has shape shifted. It has, but it hasn't been the work of one person. It's been the work of at least two generations and a lot of smart people and a lot of practices, a lot of just people spontaneously doing things and, in a new way and
0: people who at the time look like political enemies, like exactly Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, for example, yeah. but R-
1: from- Ronald Reagan and Jerry Brown end up not ushering. You what I follow open liberalism in spite of himself. Mm-hmm. So I talk in the book about following the, my kind of template. What's the big threat to individual Liberty now? What is it? I think it is this, um, open liberalism's insistence on what Zygmunt Bauman, the sociologist, called liquid modernity, that fluidity. We all have to be open to change at all times. If we're not, we're going to be penalized for that. It's very tiring. It's, it's as we like to say, exhausting. Yeah. And some people thrive with this. And good for them. Maybe we're two of those out. I don't know. But a lot of people really don't thrive under this open liberal regime. I think that neither culturally nor economically. And I think that's part of what ails our democracy now. I make a big point of this in the book. And if you want to understand polarization, you have to understand the economics and culture of open liberalism. It really is dividing us against ourselves, making us loathe and fear each other in a way that is not helping. And so what we, I don't have a game plan, but I do have an Five easy steps. Exactly. Don't have that. I I told my editor, no, simple trick. I'm not going to do that, that I won't do, but I I can outline the problem and start groping toward a better liberalism. And I call that, I've got a label, pluralistic liberalism, which is actually genuinely pluralistic Mm -hmm. in that it. it Values community, people who want to be attached to a community or family, or don't have to Give the don't get penalized for those things. Now, how that works in practice, I don't know. That's again the work of a generation you to figure out, but I think we need to think very hard about this. The alternative is more and more power to extreme populists of right and left, and we know where that's leading. Just or over time, but I
0: can't resist asking you this. I'm a, I, how do you work? How do you write? Because uh, I, I know that you've been working on this book for, you worked on this book for seven, eight years. Um, yeah, I think I I started thinking about it quite a while ago. Yeah. Well, you say it was 2015 when you were in Berlin. Yes. I was reading all that evolution. Yeah. A lot of evolution. And I know that you've told me, and I tried this for a week to keep a ideas journal. Yeah. So uh, could you describe that? I just, (laughs) how do you, how do you, these are, there's a lot of thinking in this book. There are a lot of fugitive ideas that. Yes. have or captured. You should have seen the, the, somehow you have seen what didn't make the final version too. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of that. A lot of stuff on the abattoir floor.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I keep a journal sporadically. Some sometimes I will write pages in a day or in a week at ten pages, and then I won't touch it for a month. Oh,
0: that makes me feel better.
1: Yes. Don't worry about that. Um, it shouldn't be a source of anxiety. It should be a help. I sometimes look back at what I wrote a few months before I'm embarrassed. I'm so glad it's private. No one, this is such a lousy idea. I didn't know what I was talking about. I wasn't thinking clearly, but sometimes I think, yeah, actually I'd forgotten that point. I need yeah. to pluck this, put this front and center. It's just a record um, of good and bad and mediocre, and different ideas. Yeah. And occasionally I think, yeah, that I'll read something a month ago. think, yep, that's good. I think that's what I'm going to do. Is
0: it your commonplace book too? Is that where you putting down your notes from what you're reading? Or do I do you... sometimes import. It's do you do that? It's, it's
1: on my hard drive. So it's all digital. But yeah, I import things, big passages from some writer I
0: like. So. The journal is on your hard drive. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so it goes with me
0: wherever. Yeah. My guest today has been John M. Owen IV. He is the author of most recently "The Ecology of Nations: American Democracy." in a fragile world order. John, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. it my great pleasure, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, of course, you can give us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. But the best way of helping us out is to share the podcast with a friend or with many friends. John Rodet is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.